As we look here, we're going to get back into Hebrews today. Uh, we took a, a break last week and looked at what it means to be learning to think like Jesus. It's not just something we have on the church bulletin because it looks nice. It's really true. It's something that we want to do. And, and yet, two weeks ago, we were looking at all of these things that the writer in the book of Hebrews has been saying that point to a greater reality. That greater reality being the ultimate fulfillment in Christ of all of these Old Testament things. We're going to look at a bunch of those this morning. I have a lot of slides this morning because we're going to get into the tabernacle. The writer goes back to the tabernacle, and so will we, uh, and get just by way of, of, of capturing the context. As you guys know, it's, it's all important that we stay with the context of these passages. Uh, the, the theme of this book is that Jesus is greater, that he's better. He's better than the Old Testament prophets, better than angels, better than Moses, better than Joshua, better than Aaron, the first high priest. And that in chapter 8, verse 13, the last verse that we looked at uh, two weeks ago, uh, the writer says in that he says a new covenant he has made the first obsolete. Now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. And what we looked at then was that was fulfilled. That was absolutely prophetic. It was a few years before the demolition of the temple in Jerusalem when the Roman legions under Titus came in and wiped the temple mount clean and decimated Jerusalem. And so what he's talking about, this is before the temple was destroyed. This is where Christian Jewish Christians, Messianic Christians, were coming to a place where they were stalling in their walk. They were beginning to balk because they missed all of the things that Judaism came with. It came with an identity, a national identity as a Jew, as an Israelite. It came with a culture. You did, you did feasts. You did temple. You did synagogue. You did Family, your whole life revolved around Judaism. And, 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 and when you forsook Judaism and became a Christian and gave your heart, gave your life to Christ, repented of sin and embraced Christ, embraced Jesus the Messiah, you lost all that. Not only did you lose it, not in a neutral or a static way, but you actively lost it because people turned on you. And you lost even your ability to make a livelihood. You lost your family ties. You lost you were excommunicated from Judaism. And so these people were in some very serious straits, not just religiously, but economically, socially, and, and in every aspect of their life. So the writer writes this book to say, you know what? You don't have all the visuals. Remember we talked about how in Judaism it was full of things that were just a delight to the senses, this huge temple all of the feasts and the crowds and all of the stuff and the priests with all of their ceremonies and their regalia and the fancy robes and all that, that, yeah, you might have lost that, but what you've gained, what you've gained is not something you can measure with your eyes. It's something you can measure with your heart. And so that's where he's going with these people. He keeps going back. He's bouncing back to Judaism to these different aspects of the law of Moses, these different aspects of Aspects of the old covenant, the old contract. That's what covenant means. It means contract. It, it means agreement. And it's not something that we make with God. It's something that God makes with us. He initiates it. Remember, we looked at Jesus not only initiates the covenant, he guarantees it. He co-signs on it. 
And he says, you know what? I'm going to hold up both ends because I know that because you are utterly sinful, you cannot. That's why coming to him has to be on the basis of grace. It has to be on the basis of him choosing to love me, to love you, rather than me being all that wonderful and actually deserving his love because we don't. So as we look at this, Chapter 7 through 10, the writer was making a case that Jesus is greater as a high priest. It's not just a priest, but a high priest. Uh, greater than Aaron in the Aaronic priesthood, the Old Testament priesthood, which was continual sacrificing of animals every day. And we're going to look at that. We're going to look at the implements that they used this morning. And then he says, you know, the priesthood that Jesus had, isn't even a priesthood that's after the order of Aaron. He He's a priest, a high priest, after the order of this guy named Melchizedek who wanders in from the fog in the Old Testament and, and shows up. Abraham ties to him. He blesses Abraham, and then he disappears. But they should have known because hundreds of years, 400 years after that, King David, uh, writing in Psalm 110, he's writing prophetically under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He's saying, look, guys, when he writes that, he's saying, this Messiah, when he comes, he is going to come after the order of Melchizedek. And, and that would have left them scratching their heads. And not only is he going to come after the order of Melchizedek, he is going to have a priesthood that is a priesthood of one, that he will be a priest forever. Not like the earthly priest who would die, who would take office. They would go from 30 to 50 years old, and then they, where they would die in office, and then a new priest would come in. There was no way we talked about. It. There was no way to measure character, the character of the priest. It wasn't about the character of the priest. It was about the fact that he was of the line of Levi. And the writer says, no, it doesn't matter. Jesus is from the line of Judah, but that is no longer the case. It's not on the, remember, we looked at it's not on the power of the fleshly commandment. It's on the power of an endless life. Wow. I, I look at that. I think about, I love that verse because our high priest doesn't die. He doesn't leave office. He stays. He is a high priest perpetually, forever. And that means that he represents God to me, and he re represents me to God. And that we can bank on that. And he has perfect character. Uh, not like some of the creepy high priests. We look at them. I'm not going to go in there again. But we looked at some of the guys that were high priests down through history. And, and some of them were not so good. Yet we have this better high priest. They shouldn't have been surprised uh, that God had done away with the old covenant. He said that he was going to. Remember, we looked at back in Jeremiah, in chapter 31, the writer here in chapter 8, he says, look, I, I want to bring this to your attention, guys. You who are struggling as a Christian in the first century, forsaking Judaism and thinking about going back, Jeremiah prophesied. There, right before the destruction of Jerusalem by the Babylonians, Jeremiah said, look, God's going to make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant when I, that I made with them when I took them by the hand out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke. But I'm going I'm to write my law in their hearts. And one man won't have to say to the other, know the Lord, for they'll all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them. He says there's something new coming. And the people here should have known because what the writer is doing and, and folks, wonderful, healthy practice for us is he's going back to the word of God to support the things that he's putting forth. I've got nothing. I, I you know, I'm just a guy. I, I'd like to tell people, 
I'm a delivery boy. You know, I didn't write the paper, but I get to throw it in your yard. And that's essentially what my job as a pastor is. I'm a divine deliverer. I truly, I mean that. It's not false humility. I know my place. And yet, what the writer here is doing is he's taking that paper, he's throwing it in these people's yard, and he's saying, listen up. This is the word of God. This has power. This has significance. This has application to your life. And that's why we come together, because we want to apply the word of God to our lives. We want to, we want to have an encounter with him. We don't want to just play church. We don't want to just come and, and <laughs> sit soaking sour. You know, we don't want to just come and, and, and have a religious experience. We don't want to have something that titillates our soul or our senses. Yeah, I love it when we have great music, but we're not here to entertain. We're here to worship. And so, you know, that's the emphasis that the writers, he's bringing the word of God alive to these people. And he's going to continue to as we go along. I'm going to read through the first five verses, and then we're going to get into some slides that I've prepared. And, and then we'll go through, and the Lord willing, we'll go through the first 11 verses this morning. And I better get going, because that was all introduction. So, <laughs> verse uh, verse 1, uh, he says, Then indeed, even the first covenant had ordinances of divine service in the earthly sanctuary. For a tabernacle was prepared, the first part, in which was the lampstand, the table, and the showbread, which they call is called the sanctuary. And behind the second veil, the part of the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, which had the golden censer and the Ark of the Covenant overlaid on all sides with gold, in which were the golden pot that had the manna, Aaron's rod that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat, of these things we cannot now speak in detail. <laughs> I read this and I thought, oh, I know this. I know how this guy's feeling. You guys know how I am about rabbit trails. Yeah, it's one of my favorite things to do. He is so tempted. He says, you know, I just, I want to tell you about this stuff, but I can't rabbit trail right now of such things. I can't go into detail right now. It, it, he's tempted though. He wants to go into it, but he's not gonna. So what he does is he lays down a verbal picture here of these these articles in the tabernacle. He's telling, he's painting a verbal picture, but he didn't have a projector, and we do. So we're going to go beyond the verbal and get into the actual, the, the physical, in looking at this thing called the tabernacle. So going back to verse 1, he says, even the first covenant had ordinances of divine services in the earthly sanctuary. What he's talking about uh, in this first slide here is this tent of meeting, this... God said, I want to have a place where I can dwell with my people. And, and Moses, I want you to build it for me. Now, and what he told Moses is this would be an earthly representation of that which already exists in heaven. And we'll get into that as we go. But it was this tent. Essentially, the tabernacle was it was a rectangular structure. And simply, it was a fenced yard with a tent that had two compartments inside the yard. Uh, and so... In the second slide here, one of the things I think is really interesting to look at is in the book of Numbers, and the reason why the book of Numbers is called Numbers is because they numbered the people. They numbered the tribes, okay? And in that, what God does is he lays out how he wants Israel to assemble around the tabernacle. The tabernacle would be in the center of the camp. And when you look at to the to the west... Uh, or to the east, I'm sorry, 
which is the bottom group of people, there would be 186,400 men and then women and children added. Uh, to the west, on the, on the top side there, there was 108,100. To the north, which would be on the right side, right by the guy there, uh, 157,600. And to the south, 151,450. What that did, I, they didn't have a drone that they could launch and, and look down on the whole thing. But if you were able to look down, you would have seen what looked like a cross. And again, I, I'm not trying to make that a doctrine. I just think it's very interesting that when God goes into such detail, usually there is something going on, something that we can see. Uh, again, the way I like to teach, I call it zoom out and zoom in. When you zoom way out on this, there's some significance there. Again, was that part of his design? I don't know. But I think it's really interesting the way that he laid out the tribes of Israel around this thing. So in the third slide here, it's an artist's rendering of the tabernacle. And again, you see, it was it was a yard that was about 75 feet wide, about 150 feet long, and it had a building in it. And the building was divided into two compartments. But out in the yard, there were two furnishings. One was called the brazen altar, the bronze altar. And then closer in to the tent, between the tent and the altar, was this thing called the brazen or the bronze laver or sink. <laughs> it was essentially a place for the priest to go and wash. So looking here at the fourth slide, there, there's I did sort of a, a blueprint looking thing. The outer court is what it's called around the tabernacle, the tabernacle proper. There was an entrance that was kind of divided off with a curtain. And then as you went in, you would see the bronze altar there on, on the right. And then beyond that, the bronze laver. And then this building that had this tent that was 15 feet high, 15 feet wide, and a total of 45 feet long. It was divided into two compartments. The holy place, and, and I, guys, all of these slides are so that you can, you can lock in when we actually get into the text that you'll understand where they're at, what they're doing, okay? This is it. I'm just, I'm not doing this just so that you can, you know, have a geography lesson here, but I really want you to understand and to connect with this is something that really existed. And it, it is, it was a structure. It was a beautiful, divinely constructed structure, even the earthly one. But we'll see that it was a copy of something. And so in this division here between the two rooms in the tent, the first one was 15 by 15 by 30 feet, and it was called the holy place. And then the one, the room behind that was called the holy of holies or the holiest of all. And it was the place where only one time a year, only one person could go and atone for the sins of the people. We'll get into that when we look at the text. So we have this outer court, the courtyard, and then inside were these different things that they used. Now, the bronze altar and the bronze labor, they were really interesting um, because when they had this whole tent of meeting thing set up, when you walked into the yard, when you walked into the court, the first thing you would see was this bronze altar. And the bronze altar was used if somebody wanted to come and atone for sin, not on the Day of Atonement, but just a daily deal, they would bring an animal, and they did actual animal sacrifices to the priest would lay his hands on the animal, and he would pray your sin into that animal, and you might be participating in that. You'd walk up the ramp of this thing, and we'll look at that in a second. 
And, and then the priest would literally, he would slaughter the animal there after your sin had been transferred to it. It provided a covering for sin. Again, not an eliminating of sin, and that's part of what the writer's point is in this, uh, but the brazen altar in slide five here, it was a reminder that they were not worthy to approach a holy God on their own. They couldn't do it without a blood sacrifice. There had to be an atoning for sin. And we'll see here, folks, that all of these furnishings in the tabernacle, every single one of them, and a lot more. I mean, if I wanted to get into great detail, just about every aspect of these furnishings points to Jesus Christ. They were all a shadow. They were something that pointed to a future fulfillment, to a greater reality. We've looked at that. Well, the writer actually uses that term later on in the text this morning. We'll look at that here, too. So the first thing you'd see is this altar and and, and the reminder that you were not worthy to come to God on your own, that you had to have a priest, somebody that represented God to you and you to God, and that he had to perform this very specific duty to atone for your sin. And so uh, bronze in the Bible, it's usually it's symbolic. It speaks of righteousness and judgment. And so when we look at this this bronze altar, notice that there's four horns on the altar here in the fifth slide. It, it, there's And the horns there represented God's power. All right? It was also where when you took a sacrifice in, as the priest prepared to do his priestly deal, uh, and when they had, they had daily sacrifices that were offered, they had a, a morning and an evening sacrifice, they would take the rope that the animal was tied to and they'd drape it over the horn of the altar so that there was no possibility of escape. All right, and so when they're doing that, the animal would be tied. It would not be able to get away, and then they would go up the ramp with the priest. The guy would go up the, the ramp with the priest and the animal. This is a place of confession and sacrifice. Hang on to that, because we're going to see there is a progression in this tabernacle that's just amazing. As you see and as you connect it to the, to what we have in Christ. Uh, like I said, not just a history lesson. We're going somewhere with this, and so please bear with me as we go through the details of this, because the Lord willing, as we get to the end of the message this morning, you'll have a greater understanding of just exactly how blessed you are, how blessed I am at the finished work of Christ. In 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter says, We are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And so we see that in the old covenant that we were kept from death by the power of God through these sacrifices. In the new covenant, we are kept unto life. Uh, the Bible says in Second Corinthians, he talks about the ministry of death and the ministry of life. There is a whole different emphasis in the covenant, in the contract that God makes with man through the finished work of Christ. And so as we look at this, this bronze altar, we see it as a place of confession and sacrifice. Hang on to that because as we progress through, we'll see that as we go through these different implements, it actually gets more dangerous for people the closer they get to the tent, and we'll talk about why. The next item here in the sixth slide is the bronze labor. Uh, it speaks of cleansing and forgiveness. Uh, we have been, the, the, the Bible word for what the transaction is for us, at the moment I give my life to Christ, I am sanctified. That means I am declared clean. I am cleansed by the blood of Christ. 
And in that, again, we call that, it's, it's called sanctification. There's a positional sanctification that comes about that I am declared clean, legally, permanently clean before God. Sins, past, present, and future forgiven when I come by faith to him and I embrace the finished work. Now, for these guys, what the priests had to do, because they were imperfect priests, they would have to, before they even did anything, before they even approached the tent, when they went any further beyond this, they would have to be cleansed. They would have to go for cleansing for themselves because they were men. Jesus never had to, in the the heavenly tabernacle, he never had to do this because he was the sinless man. He was the God man. He was the one who lived the sinless life and that in doing that, he became sin that we could become the righteousness of God. He became sin so that we could be cleansed. In Exodus chapter 30, what the Lord tells Moses here, he says, make a bronze basin with its bronze stand for washing. Place it between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it. Aaron and his sons are to wash their hands and feet with water from it. Whenever they enter the tent of meeting, they shall wash with water so that they will not die. Serious? Yeah. you got to understand holiness, folks. We serve a holy God. And what that means is moral purity as relates to infinity. And so guess what? God's holy or not. We have to have. That's why Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, there is no way that you're going to see heaven. Because holiness is required. We are approaching a holy God. The only way that I can be cleansed is through the blood of the Lamb, the permanent cleansing that takes place. Otherwise, these guys, because they were sinful men, because they had a fallen nature, just like you and I, they had to continually be cleansed whenever they went to approach the meeting, the tent. And so, contrasted to that, in Ephesians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul, talking about marriage and husbands and wives specifically, he says, Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with a washing of water of water by the word. We don't have to have a labor in our lives. We, there's, he is our cleansing. He said that he might present her to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. This labor points to the finished work of Christ, just like the, the altar of sacrifice points to the finished work, to the sacrifice that he would do on our behalf, the cleansing that he would perform on our behalf, moving in closer. Now, this would be as far as common people could go in the tabernacle as they worshiped there. And these were, this is how they worshiped in Judaism in back in those days. And so, To go beyond this was to put yourself in mortal peril. That's why he says to the priest, you better use this labor, because if you don't, you're going to die. Very serious. God takes sin very seriously. He takes sanctification. He takes cleansing very seriously. He made a way for a shadow of the cleansing that we experience through this. We see that this is a shadow. This is It's a living parable in that sense. Verse 2, for a tabernacle, the tent of meeting was what it was called, was prepared, uh, the first part, in which was the lampstand, the table, and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. So the sanctuary is this first part of this tent. In, in the eighth slide we have here, 
You see there that, that there's two compartments, and there was a veil. There were actually two curtains across this thing. The first curtain was across the front when you went in. Notice that there's a couple of guys standing in the bottom right corner. They're standing at the labor. They're standing at the, the, the basin that they cleanse themselves with. After that, they could go in behind the veil. Only if they were priests after the order of Levi, after the order of Aaron. Remember, uh, the Levites did all of the the, tech, the functions of, of packing this thing up and carting it around. But the sons of Aaron, the, the Aaronic priests, were the only ones who could go into this place. And so they would go in every day to this. And, and the, what it looked like on the inside is they would... Once they cleanse themselves, then they would walk in, they would go behind this first curtain, and there on their left would be this beautiful bronze, or I'm sorry, not bronze, it was golden menorah. God went from using common metals for the things outside in the yard, bronze. It was a very common metal, brass and tin is, is what it's com- composed of. And he went from the common metals out in the yard to the precious metals, very Symbolically, but but very much on purpose, he went to pure gold with the things on the inside. Uh, he had wooden tables made out of sheeting wood that was that were plated with gold, and and then you would look to your left, you'd see this beautiful menorah, and then to your right there would be this table that had these twelve loaves of bread on it, and then right in front of you there would be this uh, altar of incense, and, and we'll talk about each of those as we go along here. Uh, Fascinating, fascinating. I wish I had more time to go into each one of these. I just want you to get a taste for how these all point to Christ. So, uh, in the, uh, looking here in, in the seventh slide, I had those switched up, Richard. I hope you got that. Uh, sort of a blueprint, uh, the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies, you see there, uh, that was the only furnishing in the holiest place. There was only one. We'll talk about, he names two here, but, We'll talk about why there's only one. Uh, and it's not saying the Bible was wrong. Just, he's assuming some things. The, but in, in the holy place, you see the table and the menorah and the altar. Those were the furnishings that were in there. Now, you might be wondering, at this time, there was a temple in Jerusalem. Why is the writer reaching back to the tabernacle, which had long since expired? Its use had long since gone away because when they built the temple, the, the tabernacle was replaced. I believe, and this is an opinion, I believe the reason for that is is that back during the time of Nebuchadnezzar, when he attacked Jerusalem, they carried the Ark of the Covenant off, and it was never seen again. So the Ark is missing from Jerusalem when the writer writes this, So he, and it's very crucial to understand the Ark's role in this. And so he reaches back beyond the temple and back into the, the pages of the Old Testament to talk about God's design for this tabernacle, because the Ark of the Covenant was there. And when the Ark was taken away by the Babylonians, God even prophesied, I think it was through Jeremiah, Jeremiah or Ezekiel, I don't remember which, but he prophesied, he said, look, there will come a time where they don't even bring it up, and I'm not bringing it back. I'm paraphrasing, but that's what he said. It's not part of your worship anymore. They had so dishonored God in their rebellion, and they had so trashed his order of worship that he said, no, it's gone. It's out of the way and it's not coming back. He also knew that in the future that he would be ushering in a new way. And with both of the temples, both Solomon's temple that had the ark in it, but in the next temple, in Herod's temple, it was absent. So the priest would have to do some other form of service behind the second veil. 
Anyway, I believe that's why. So looking here at the ninth slide, at this golden menorah, you'll see that it's a, it's a, it was a huge candle stand. And this is a picture of a current one that's been reproduced by the Temple Institute. Right? The Temple Institute in Jerusalem has reproduced all of these articles for rebuilding the temple. They exist. Uh, when my wife and I were there, we went to the Temple Institute and we looked on these things. And this particular menorah, they, they carted out in this big plexiglass case. It, it's, you know, seven feet high or whatever. It's a huge deal. It's a huge candle stand. And they park it in different places around the city of Jerusalem for, for tourists to see. And, and when we saw it, it was like, what a marvelous piece uh, it, it is. And it is truly striking to behold. It's not a little candle stand. This thing was big. The, the dimensions for most of these things are given when God gave Moses the instructions. He used cubits, which is a, a cubit about a foot and a half, 18 inches. For the menorah and for the labor, there are no dimensions given. So uh, suffice it to say that it was a, it would be a strikingly beautiful piece, and it had seven lamps on top of it. They filled with oil. The priests would go in daily and fill the lamps with oil on this thing. They would also go in once a week and change the bread, the show bread, inside the holy place. They were constantly going in and maintaining, because God said, when you light that lamp, don't let it go out. So uh, when we look at this, now interesting, you'll see that some menorahs, this is just a, a side note, some menorahs have nine lamps on them. Anybody know why there's nine? No good Jewish people? <laughs> because at Hanukkah, they have eight days of Hanukkah and then they have the ninth. There's a Hanukkah menorah that, that con contemporary Jews use. And you'll see that sometimes you'll see a menorah that has nine uh, nine lamps on it. Suffice it to say that back in that day, there were seven, three branches on each each side, and they lit this thing, and it was intended to, to stay lit. Now, Jesus, we know, he fulfills this by, in, in his own words, I am the light of the world. The only source of light in the entire tabernacle, the only natural source of light, there was another one, but and we'll get to that, the only natural source of light was this menorah. And it was there to light up the holy place. It was there to light up their, their, as they went in and performed their acts of worship. And that's what the holy place was for. They went in, it was for performing acts of divine worship. And it was also for prayer. So that we have, again, this progression, you have, you have judgment, you have this place where there was sacrifice and confession, and then there's cleansing, and now moving into the holy place itself, there is worship. And there is prayer. And we see that those are representative of different functions of what we do as Christians, don't we? This was a shadow. Again, it's a type and a shadow. It's an external that satisfies an internal requirement that's fulfilled in us, in Christ. So uh, it's the only source, and it points directly to Christ as being the light of the world. Uh, in First John, or in John chapter 1, verse 9, Jesus says, I am, that he says, he's the true light, that gives light to all people. Moving on here into the bread of the presence, the showbread, the table of showbread here uh, in the 10th slide uh, represented God's fellowship with the 12 tribes because of sin. And, you know, it is totally because of sin that all of these things are in place. And we'll talk about that. We'll talk about God's grace in the midst of all of this because of 
people sin, God was not able to dwell directly with them. The way had not been made. It wouldn't be made until Jesus came onto the scene and atoned for sin once for all. So this, it was called the bread of the presence because it represented God's fellowship with these 12 tribes. That was the, it was so limited. All of these were limited in their scope. And so in, in John 6.35, Jesus declared, I am the bread of life, and whoever comes to me will never hunger. Now the priests changed the bread every Saturday. They were the only ones who were allowed to eat the bread. There was one exception, and that was when King David was on the run from Saul, and he got to the, the tabernacle, and the only thing to eat was the showbread. Jesus used it as an example, saying, you know what, we, I allowed that. Because of the need that was there. He, he, and I won't get into all that in terms of the rabbit trail on that. But the point is, is that that was the only exception that we see in the Bible where this showbread, this, this specific bread, these 12 loaves of bread, they were unleavened. And that meant no sin. Leaven is symbolic in the Bible of sin. They were unleavened bread, these 12 loaves that represented God's fellowship with man. So when they ate this, they were the only ones, when they changed out the loaves on Saturday, on, on Sabbath, Shabbat, they were the only ones who were allowed to eat the bread. Moving on here, the altar of incense. The writer doesn't talk about this altar in the text in Hebrews that we're in. Uh, and the reason is he talks about the, 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 um, the censer. If you'll notice here in the 11th slide, I've got a censer at the base of the altar of incense. What this was, incense was symbolic of the prayers of the people rising up to God. And they had this, they had a, a, a incense that was formulated. It would have smelled absolutely wonderful. And this incense daily was being, was rising up to God. It was something that the priests did, again, in their priestly functions every day, that they would go to this altar and they would light the incense. Now, on the Day of Atonement, the priests would take, uh, handfuls of this incense, put it into the censer. You guys have probably seen in, you know, in some worship that they use the censer with the smoke and all that. That's where they got it from. Uh, but we'll see here that all of that stuff expired. <laughs> not going to go there. But the point is that he would load up the censer and he would take it behind the veil, the high priest, once a year. And that would be so that there would be a smoke that came in front of the Ark of the Covenant that when the presence of God showed up over the seat, over the, the mercy seat, the lid of the Ark of the Covenant, that there would be this smoke that would be still separating God from the high priest. Very symbolic. Uh, so the, the writer here in Hebrews talks about the censer being already behind the veil. That's why he doesn't go into this whole altar of incense thing. All right, we're getting back to the text here in just a moment. Um, verse 3, he, he says, And behind the second veil... The part of the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, or the holy of holies, which had the golden censer, that's where he puts it, and the Ark of the Covenant overlaid on all sides with gold, in which were the golden pot that had the manna, and the manna reminded Israel of God's provision and their ungratefulness. Remember, every time you turn around, you read the, the Exodus account when the people are wandering through, and they are murmuring and complaining, again, we should have gone back to and they had these idealized versions of what Egypt was like when they had been slaves, and they were making bricks with no straw, and they were under the hard taskmasters of Egypt. Oh, we had it so good when we were in Egypt. We all oh, the onions and the barley and the leeks. Oh, yeah. 
And, and they were so ungrateful for God's provision, and the manna reminded Israel of that. It also had Aaron's rod that had budded, and the rod reminded Israel of their, of their rebellion against God's authority. And again, I'm not going to go back into the story on that, but it was, it was symbolic, totally symbolic of their rebellion against God. And then the tablets of the covenant. Remember what happened when Moses came down from the mountain with the tablets? And there was the sound, was it the sound of war? No, it was a party, and it was a party to this calf that they had made and named it Jehovah. And, and the tablets of the covenant reminded Israel of their failure to keep the Ten Commandments and the rest of the law. They didn't do it. They never did. So the contents of this ark represented Israel, Israel's sin, rebellion, and failure. But it doesn't stop there. Because also represented in that is the grace of God. People say, oh, I don't see the grace of God so much in the Old Testament. It's just this cruel, harsh God. Da, da, da. No, no, the grace of God is all over the place because God in his grace, remember there at Kadesh Barnea, he was going to destroy the entire nation and Moses hit the ground, got on his face and begged God not to. And God relented. God was gracious with these people and he's gracious with us. So we look at that, we see that that was man's failure. That was the whole point of the law was to illustrate man's inability to keep it. You can't look down your nose at Israel because if we were faced with the same thing, we would have the same record. God in his provision kept those there as a reminder. Verse 5, And above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. Oh, but we have. Uh, As far as the tabernacle goes, this whole progression, we would enter by faith. In order to even go to the tabernacle, you would have to believe that there's something there for you. There's an encounter with God there for you, wouldn't you? So going in, the first thing you would look at is this altar, this altar that represents confession and sacrifice. Going beyond that to the labor, you see this place of cleansing and forgiveness. Going beyond that into the holy place, this place of worship and prayer. And then beyond that, the high priest once a year going into actually to the very presence of God, but in a limited sense. It was a beautiful picture, but it was still limited for them. That way is not limited for us. It's part of what the, the writer in Hebrews is bringing out to us. And so we see that this Ark of the Covenant, this place once a year, in Leviticus 16, there's great instructions. I've, I've taught on it in this church before, but uh, great instructions for how the high priest would make atonement for the people, he would take the blood of the sacrifice and he would sprinkle it on the east side of the Ark of the Covenant seven times. And then the rest of the blood he would pour out on the floor in front of it, on the ground. And then uh, he, this is after he had done great ceremonial washings for himself because he was an imperfect, unclean man. And then he would, after he made atonement, he would, he would be atoning for all of the sins of the people that were committed in ignorance, that they were the sins that were committed that had not been covered by the daily sacrifices. We talked about it one time, I'm not going to belabor it, we talked about it a couple times actually, about how you look at the tomb that Jesus was laid in, and that that there in the tomb, when uh, Mary looked in, at the tomb, and she saw an angel at the head and an angel at the foot of the the, tab, the stone uh, 
place where they had laid Jesus' body. And we see there an impression of the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant, an angel on one side, an angel on the other, facing one another. Seven points of touchdown for the blood of Christ there on that stone from his head, from both hands, from his feet, both feet, and from the spear in his side. Seven places. And he sprinkled, sprinkled the blood seven times there with the instructions from Leviticus. We see a total picture there of, the, of this, of the mercy seat uh, in the tabernacle. So uh, verse 6, Now when these things had been thus prepared, the priests always went into the first part of the tabernacle performing the services. They always, What that means is they went in every day. This was their regular deal. It was something that they did all the time. So he went into the first part, but into the second part, the high priest went alone once a year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the people's sins committed in ignorance. So the picture is this. He goes in one time, once a year. So here you have the holiest priest, the high priest. He is, he is the guy in all of Israel. He was the guy, that the one guy that could go in. So you have the holiest priest going into the holiest place. And, and on the holiest day, Yom Kippur is what they call it now, but it was the Day of Atonement. So you have this whole deal where the most important guy in the most important place on the most important day, and he couldn't bring people into fellowship with God. Why? We'll talk about that as we go. Verse 9. It was symbolic for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regard to the conscience. The word symbolic there is telling. It is key in understanding this passage. The word is parable, and it's the same word that we get for parable when we talk about the parables of Christ. What is a parable? We talked about it last week, folks, when we were talking about uh, the parable of the lost things. Remember, if you were here, if you were with us, we talked about a parable. Is something? It's a, a it's a story that Jesus would tell to lay down. It means to lay down alongside of. It's a truth. It's a story that illustrates a greater spiritual truth, a greater reality. The tabernacle itself was a parable. The old covenant was a parable. The greater reality is Christ. The greater reality is the sacrifice that Jesus would do one time for all, that cleansing would come automatically just through faith in him. And all of these things were symbolic in, in the gifts and the sacrifices. They couldn't make the person perfect. This guy could not bring people into fellowship with God. All he could do is satisfy God's holy requirements for people not to die. That's it. There were deeper truths that were being pointed to by all of these things. And that's the point of all these slides and all of this talk. You know, I, this is not essential stuff that you understand in order to be saved, in order to have a relationship with Christ, but to know what these people faced and what these people were thinking about going back to. And the writer is saying, absolutely not. Have you stopped to consider that each of these things was pointing to a greater reality? And if you have Christ, you have embraced the greater reality that's being talked about. There's no need to go back to anything more. Yeah, all of these things were visual, but they were external. Nothing affected the heart. It couldn't perfect someone's conscience. It couldn't, it couldn't reach the heart of man. That's what the new covenant does. 
God puts his law in our hearts. He puts his word in our hearts. He puts his spirit inside of us. And now my life can be an expression of him as he is allowed to work out of my life. If you don't have a relationship with Christ, if you have never come to a place of repenting of sin and saying, Lord, my life doesn't work, and embracing him as Lord, not just saying it, but embracing him as Lord, I want to invite you this morning, please, do business with him. What he offers is infinitely greater than anything this world has to offer. It's infinitely greater than anything that religion has to offer. Infinitely greater. And so the application is not just to these people in the first century who were struggling. The application is for us. Each one of us. If you're in a place where perhaps your walk with the Lord has begun to waver, perhaps you're struggling, perhaps it's one of those times where God seems distant, let him touch your heart. Let him work in you. Let him express himself in you and through you. Let him perhaps cleanse you. If you're in an area where you need cleansing, you don't have to go to the labor. You go to him. First John chapter 1, verse 9 says, if we confess our sins, and, and what do you do? It, you're exercising faith to just go to him and say, you know what, Lord? My life's not working. And I've got this area of my life. I know that you're calling me to let go. He says, if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you for your sins and to what? And to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. I call that the Christian bar of soap. But you know what? It works. He works because he is faithful. The humility that's required to come to him and and to bow the knee and say, Lord, I, I, I don't have this. That's the circumstances in my life this week. Lord, I don't have this. I don't understand this. I see my own frailty. I see my own humanity in the middle of all this. I need you. And he's faithful. Absolutely faithful to bring it past. So, these things were symbolic. And I would submit to you, folks, symbolic of what? There's a greater picture here, the greater reality. I would submit to you that the tabernacle itself was an earthly picture of heaven. It was showing man, yes, a dim reflection, even in its greatness, even in its majesty, because it was a majestic thing, but that it was a reflection of heaven. We're going to talk about the heavenly uh, tabernacle, the heavenly sanctuary next week, because the writer goes into that in the next section. But it's a parable. It's a truth to lay down alongside a greater reality. And the greater reality is heaven itself, the place where Jesus ministers for you and for me. The place where he perpetually ministers forever. It's the shadow versus the reality. It's the incomplete cleansing uh, for the priest and the people in this versus the complete finished work in Christ for us. Verse 10. Concerned only with foods and drinks and various washings and fleshly ordinances imposed until the time of reformation. What on earth do you mean by that? What he says here is that the weakness of the priestly service under the old covenant was its inability to address the need for inner transformation in man. You don't get that with an external system. I've shared with you guys, when I grew up in, in the Mormon church, it was an external system. I would go and I would have religious experiences and think that I'd had an experience with God. But it was something that was totally oriented towards my flesh. 
It never impacted the inner man. Because it was a system. It was an external system. It could never change my heart. And that's what God's business is. That's what his transforming work does. As we submit to him, he'll do the changing. He just simply wants us to show up and to cooperate with the work that he wants to do. That's why walking with the Lord is so stinking easy that we miss it. And, and that was a religious sounding statement, wasn't it? It's so stinking easy. But it's true. It's so true. We, we can, I, you know what? I love technical stuff. I love theology. I love to get off into the weeds on this stuff. And, and man, and sometimes I come back and it's like hours have passed. It's like, wow, <laughs> I better get back on track here. Just because I love all that stuff. But the simplicity of the gospel, you know, Jesus loves me. This I know. For the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. He is, I am weak, but he is strong. It's really no more complicated than that. Like I said, I love the technical stuff. I love sharing that stuff with you. But the point in all of it is what we have in Christ. The point in all of it is the beauty of our relationship as opposed to the rigidity of an external system. It was only imposed until the time of Reformation. Praise God. It was never intended by God. The, the old covenant, the tabernacle, the ordinances, the priesthood, all of that stuff, it was never intended by God to be a permanent way for man to have his sins covered. It was never intended to be permanent. It was always intended that it would point to a greater reality, and that greater reality would be Christ. And he would come when God himself took the form of a man and was born into his own creation and grew up to be mocked and scourged, spit upon, hung on a cross, to voluntarily to sign up for the cross so that he could bring man further than any high priest ever could so that he could bring us right into the very presence of God, so that we could have a relationship with a living God instead of a, 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 a cold and personal system. That's what this stuff points to. Verse 11, But Christ came as high priest of the good things to come with a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. And we'll get into that next week when we talk about the superior sanctuary in the New Covenant. The greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands. When we look at Jesus as our high priest, ministering in a superior sanctuary in, in the very throne room of God. We're going to go there, folks. We're going to take a look at that. We're going to look at that. We're going to look at Isaiah chapter 6. When Isaiah was taken to the same throne room, and really there's only one response, and it's to worship. That's why we worship. We'll look at that. It's obviously a place greater than anything that human hands could have made. I uh, want to look at five things here quickly in closing that we can pull out of this passage, things that we can take home and, and, and ponder. The first is the old covenant through Moses was limited from the beginning. Why? Because it was external. Because God had not imposed a new covenant at that time. It was limited from the start. There was no way that the high priest could ever bring about fellowship with God. There was no way that the, the way being open. That veil, when Jesus hung on the cross and the veil was torn in the temple, it's, it was the same veil that we're looking at here that separates the holy place from the holy of holies. And when the veil was torn, it was symbolic 
that now the way is open to freely come into God's presence. Praise God. It was a shadow. It was a parable. The second thing here is the priests worshipped, but they could only come so far. Remember, it got more dangerous for these guys as they went. It was very dangerous because of God's holiness and because of man's sin. Even the priests, even the high priests, they had to have perpetual cleansing. They had to approach God with great caution because of his holiness. And that holiness remains, by the way. We serve a holy God. And he calls us to lives that are set apart because he's forming Christ in us. The third thing here is the priest's worship. Um, I'm sorry, the fourth thing here is the sacrifices worked, but they couldn't cleanse the inner man. Interesting. I was thinking about air, airplane flight. As somebody was talking to me, I was talking to somebody the other day, I was telling them about when I went to flight school, and I left flight school right before I soloed, before I got my pilot's license. Uh, I was in my 20s, and the company I worked for wanted me to be their pilot, fly the owner around all over so they were paying for my flight lessons, and we got caught in a wind shear on final approach one day at the airport. It <laughs> got pushed about 400 feet down, and the only way to get out of it was to point the nose of the plane at the ground and hit full throttle. My impulse was to pull the yoke up. I was driving, <laughs> and yet my instructor yelled, hands off. I pulled my hands off, and he put the yoke forward, and I'm staring at the ground, and it's coming up really fast. We were on final approach and had flaps down and all that. We weren't doing it. And the stall warning indicator's going off in my ear, which is not a good sound. So, right before we got to, the, and, it, and of course it's virgin timber up in Washington State and Spanaway is where I was. Uh, and, and, you know, and you, you gotta land the plane at a steep angle anyway. So we, when he pulled out, I felt like I could have stuck my foot out and, and kicked the top of the trees. I mean, it was close. And I got out of that plane when we got it on the ground, and I walked around, and I shook the guy's hand, and I said, I won't be back next week. I'm done. <laughs> the point, folks, the old covenant was kind of like a plane. Do you understand something? And I don't want to scare you. If you're afraid of flying, I'm going to build on that. But... <laughs> But the point is, is that, that the old covenant was kind of like flying a plane. That plane is totally designed. Everything about that plane is to keep you from dying. Everything about that plane is to keep you from crashing. I mean, it's, we're not designed to be up in the air hurtling along at 600 miles an hour, whatever it is in a jet. And everything about that, that plane is trying to crash from the time it leaves the ground. And I'm not, again, well, maybe I'm having a little bit more fun with you than I ought to have. But the point is, the, the point in all of that is, is that it, that's by design. That's what happens. That's what the law did. That's what the old covenant did. It kept people from dying. It, it was there to keep people from being killed in the presence of God. He's dangerous. The tabernacle was essentially a protective device. And that's what it fulfilled. It was never designed by God. There's no way to come into fellowship with God on that basis. All it was doing was preserving people's lives. Kind of like that plague. The point in that is, is that sacrifices worked, but they couldn't cleanse the inner man. It was all about keeping the plane from crashing. That's what it did. 
The last thing here is the tabernacle that he serves in, that Jesus serves in, that he serves in this moment is the real one. It's, it's not the shadow. And we serve a risen living Lord that is intimately familiar with and acquainted with the details of our lives. Does he want to be, you know, the, somebody asked, what was it, Deal Moody, uh, one of his outreaches back in Chicago in the 19th century, yeah, is God really interested in the big things in my life, or in the little things in my life? And, and Moody's response was, well, to God, is anything big? Yeah, he's interested in the, in the details of your life, of my life. He wants to be involved. He wants to be invited in. If you've not invited him in for the first time, I encourage you, do that today. Do it today. Don't wait. You don't have a guarantee of tomorrow. If you've been struggling in your relationship with him, if there's an area of your life that perhaps he's put his finger on this morning, do business with him. We're going to have the worship team would come up. We're going to sing one more song that I think is just a great uh, piece of music that fits the, the message this morning.